We all know that property advice is unregulated and myths abound around what makes a good investment. Most of these myths are nothing more than sales spin, yet many seem to have entered our national psyche, such as the rising tide lifting all ships one. If you enjoy challenging these myths as much as we do, then you'll love this episode because we've got evidence that a lot of what Australians believe about real estate investing is rubbish. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Sometimes it takes an industry outsider to shed light on absurdities that insiders have become desensitised to. Today's guest is one such outsider who has taken a look at how property data, while readily available, is so misunderstood and misused to create weapons-grade bullshit. Oh, how I love that phrase. He's going to share with us his journey of discovery and reveal what the evidence says about successful property investing. Evan Thornley is a tech entrepreneur who has turned his attention to the real estate industry and, along with two partners, founded Longview, a firm focused on buying and managing residential property in response to the frustration they experienced with the short-term focus of the real estate industry in Australia, music to our ears. Evan, thank you so much for joining us. We're very interested in digging into what you've learned from digging into the data. No, thanks, Veronica. Yeah, look, thank you for having me. And... Um... <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for that very kind introduction. Um, I hope we deserve at least most of it, or we will in due course. You know, <laughs> we'll I'm from Silicon out. Valley, right? So you got to release the vaporware. Let's before go there the first, to be honest, Evan. But, I don't um, usually yeah. like to go too deep on the whole life story and you tell us about your cats, etc. But you know, what got you into the property market? Mm. I do think it's an interesting um, mm. twist to your story. You know, in terms of a lot of tech stuff in the past, and now you've gone, oh, let's work in the, you know, disrupt the property mm. market. I guess what got you to sort of make that shift and do you regret it, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've never had more fun, actually. It's so strange. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I, look, I'm a, I'm an old-time Silicon Valley person. I, um, you know, put the first Australian tech company on the NASDAQ uh, 23 years ago. Um, I think it was the first tech unicorn, as they're now commonly called, you know, um, built it to a $14 billion market cap, which was, you know, real money in those days. Um uh, um, you know, delivered a hundred times their money to our early venture capital investors and, and other things that you do in Silicon Valley. Um, um, my, my PA paid cash for her house actually on the stock options in the business. So that part was particularly satisfying uh, for her, I'm sure, as well as for us. Um, so yeah, I, I came out of that world and, um, you know, came home to Australia and um, look, you know, I grew up on, you know, in a single parent family on welfare and never had much money so when you have some quickly you then get very protective about not wanting to lose it and so whilst I love building high-tech and high-risk businesses I wanted somewhere safe to put my money and like most sensible Australians I felt that um, uh, I was going to say bricks yeah. and mortar but what I will really say <laughs> in a minute is dirt um, <laughs> but you know residential property was a good pl a good safe place to invest my money and I went looking for help and 
Um, you know, I guess I'll, I'll be honest, um, you know, when you land on the rich list at the age of 38, there's a lot of people who give you a lot of advice on a lot of things. And, um, you know, I had very good lawyers and very good accountants and very good advisors on all sorts of things. And so I was assuming that, uh, you know, don't you know who I am? Somebody come and tell me mm. how residential property works. And there was no one. Like, um, and and, yep. and worse than that, I, I thought, you know, I'm pretty smart. I'll figure this out. Like most Australians, I thought I knew a lot more about what do you think you actually than I actually did. Yes. I, really, I really, I look back now and I realise how absolutely clueless I was, and in my case, arrogantly clueless, yep. which is almost certainly worse, right? Um, and is it, when, what <laughs> year are you talking yeah. here, Evan? Like what year, um, roughly 2002? Oh, look, I came yeah. home in 2002. Yeah, um, yeah. and um, look, you know, I gradually started, you know, putting some money into resi property. I probably yeah. got more serious about okay. that about a decade later. And, you know, I just, I actually had no idea what I was doing. And I, and I thought, you know, I thought I did. I didn't understand property finance. I didn't understand the way mm. leverage worked. I didn't, you, you know, just the most basic mm. fundamental things which, you know, land appreciates, buildings depreciate, right? Like yep. I, I must use that phrase 10 times a day now um, with clients, with staff, with anyone who will listen. Mm. Um you know, no one tells us these things. Um, it, it's just, and and so it's only in retrospect that I understand that a lot of what I thought I knew was, you know, I'm a reasonably well-read person, and I, you know, kind of read the Fin Review and the the quality journals, was actually a point of view either deliberately or unintentionally put forward by yeah. the three huge industries that surround this asset class: the mortgage lenders, the developers, and the real and estate the sales industry. And either through ignorance or malfeasance, um, they've educated us all um, with a load of yeah. weapons-grade stuff. Do you put the, do you put um, the governments in there and, too, Evan? Um, You've put the banks. I'm oh, definitely. Oh, not so much governments, mm. but the political argy-bargy, yeah, you, 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 you know, gets into all and of did that you, Did you well, learn a lot sure. of hard truths, I for guess, sure. in that um, sort of 2000 to 2010 uh, you know, 2000 to 2010 period where you bought the wrong stuff and then you went, hang on a sec, this isn't working or? Oh, well, well, probably, I mean, in my case, probably more the next decade when I bought some yeah. stuff. But, yeah, you know, bought, bought wrong stuff, um, both both for personal homes and for and for investments. And, um, I, and uh, I mean, it was random, right? Like some things did well, some things did badly. But, you know, absolutely zero correlation between what I might have thought and what actually would have happened. And, and I look back now on on what I've both learned, you know, as you were saying, Veronica, from experience, yeah. but also then from what the data tells me. Um, <laughs> and it's not that mysterious. Um, <laughs> the margins, you know, there are things that are hard to predict, but the yeah. central rules are incredibly clear. Um, and so what is weird is not learning how this stuff works. What is weird is that that is not commonplace and indeed that the, the bulk of the narratives are driven either unintentionally or maliciously by um, a certain segment of the value chain, that being the banks, the developers and the real estate sales industry. It's interesting and I hope you get to, well, you will get to tell us very soon about how you got into the business side of, of yeah. the real estate industry. But it's interesting because we've come to very same conclusions, you and I, um, mm. through different methods of research. And we're talking mm. earlier and we'll, we'll share with you listeners very shortly that um, Evans used effectively machine learning and, and you know, big 
you know, he's the benefit of your your heritage at Silicon Valley yeah. and your ability to use technology to delve into data and work out what's really going on. Whereas I came at it from looking at case studies mm. and scratching my head thinking, yeah. why did that one go up that much and that one didn't? Why, why did that happen if yeah. that didn't? Why did that person make money and that person yeah. lost money? How can it be that a rising tide does not lift all ships, that if you buy on a main road in a great suburb, you are not going to make the same rate of capital growth as something on a great street? All of that that sort of started because I've got a natural curiosity, I guess, and I'm a critical thinker, um, that yeah. I, I'm scratching my head. And it took me a long time, I have to tell you. I started doing case studies yeah. and I started formulating my, my theories on this and thinking, why am I the only person that is seeing this? Am I missing something? And I took, I have to tell you, for me personally, it was actually a number of years where I'm thinking I'm missing yeah. something and I'm kept digging, 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 thinking what am I missing that everyone else seems to know? Um then I actually started, and I was only reflecting on this this morning, that we started this podcast yeah. four years ago. It was in April um, that we started recording four years ago. My learning through this podcast and the people that we've interviewed mm. has actually helped me solidify and understand that I wasn't off the off the off the beaten track some things i had wrong some of my hypotheses were yep. wrong there's no doubt about that i've learned so yep. much but you've come at it from completely outside the industry and and that's where you've come at it from such a different um you know approach i'm really curious to know when the light bulb went off for you and and how and and share i guess for our listeners yep. what that light bulb has, has told you yeah yeah thanks look the first thing i want to make really clear because this is completely central to who we are at Longview. Like, we are not a bunch of um, propeller heads sitting on a beanbag in Cremorne with black-branded T-shirts, right? Um, uh, we're not your garden variety prop tech startup who thinks that everything can be solved by data algorithms. Um, <laughs> we do all that stuff, for sure. I come from that world. But I think one of the central things that we've learned actually is that residential property can only be done properly with a combination of deep field expertise yeah. in the field, on the ground, with individual clients and individual yeah. properties and the facts, so the data, the data analytics. And the hard thing is to marry those two. And that's what we've been really trying to do as an organisation. Almost exactly, you know, we've grown pretty quickly, I guess, the last few years we're up to about 140 people now and um, almost exactly half our organisation are long-term uh, residential property. I don't like to use the word real estate because that sounds like sales agents and I don't like sales agents. Um, uh, are long-term residential property experts, you know, and veterans of, of, of the industry and about half our team are talented outsiders from a range of other industries that bring in new skills and it's the chemistry of the two that I think has helped us bring a good a good set of answers right so so my answer is not hey all our propeller heads got it right and uh you got it wrong veronica or or but actually i like we have and the key thing to build a successful disruptor by the way in any industry is to get um open-minded veterans from the industry with different skills from outside mm. the industry yeah and mutual respect between those two groups and, and the hardest part is actually the last part mm. and we've <laughs> really tried to do that so We've learned an enormous amount from our team who have decades of experience serving clients in the trenches, doing the work, thinking about it afterwards, doing the type of things that I mean, you, you, you I think, are a particularly analytical um, person in, in the industry, Veronica, so perhaps more than most, but all of that, but then bringing data science to look at it statistically. Um, 
And, and, and part of it, Chris, I guess, just to kind of go to the client experience, this stuff really started, uh, I can give you a bit of history on the company later if that's interesting to anyone, but, you know, we started out in the property yeah. management side of the business just because that was done so badly um, and we got so let down and I'd never met a happy landlord. Um, <laughs> and and once we started doing that really well, you know, we our client NPS scores at Longview were, you know, like 70 NPS points above the industry average. Um I wandered off unsupervised with a spreadsheet and started in analysing the investment yeah. performance of the properties that our clients had bought. They didn't buy them from us and we didn't help them buy them, so it was nothing to do with us. And I was gobsmacked to see that on average their capital growth performance was 280 basis points, 2.8% compound per yeah. annum, yeah. lower than the housing market average. So while our clients pay us you know, about $11 million a year to do a really outstanding job of managing their properties, that same group of clients with that same set of assets is losing, not in cash terms, but in lost opportunity, $100 million a year in lost capital growth just to the housing market average, let alone if they had bought top half or top quartile or top decile assets. And that's when we said, boy, there is, it's really important that properties are managed well, rental properties managed well, but there is no point. We are not going to make our clients successful as property investors if we don't help them buy well, because that's actually 90% of their end performance. And that's, that's when we started working closely with some senior buyers advisors in the industry and trying to learn from them and work with them and then bring data science into support, test the theories and the hypotheses and see what worked and what didn't. That, that was the genesis of it was just... It's just heartbreaking. You, you know, you must see this all the time. You know, yeah. our clients are just mum and dad investors. They don't trust the stock market and all those other crooks. They work hard. They play by the rules. They put a bit of money aside and try and build, you know, a, a, a safe and prosperous retirement and a little bit of money for the next generation. And they get sold a bill of goods by the developers and the sales agents. Um, and and the promise of all boats rising, as you say, Veronica, you know, you must you must have had this yourself, you know, all the time. They yeah. say, oh, gosh, I thought the market would have gone up by now, mm. you know. And you have to have that really heartbreaking conversation that says, actually, the market, broadly speaking, has gone up, but not yeah. for you, you yeah. know. And it's not going to. And it just, it made me really angry, well, oh, hence oh. my um, uncharitable I mean, it's language, interesting. So uh, the property in the manager industry, um, <laughs> you know, their product is, you know, managing that property, right? And so it's heavily conflicted. Um, you know, agents yes. are always trying to um, attack their, you know, property manager listings to try to get sales and, and annoying the property management side and then et cetera. But generally speaking, even property managers, they're not going to be saying, hey, yeah. I know if you bought a better investment property, you would have done better. A lot of them want to just keep that listing and keep the rental coming in, right, and not encourage them to sell because it reduces their book. But yeah. how are you sort of managing that when you've got caught thousands and thousands of investors that have got underperforming assets? Um, how yeah. are you sort of encouraging them to you know, go back in time almost and start making decisions today on what they could do for their future, I guess? You know, it's, it's really interesting and it's, it's a long journey with them because um, – Look, we've been in the fortunate position, I guess, as, you know, we called the company Longview for a reason. Yeah. We we believe property is a long game and and we are in this business for the long term. And so, you know, call us old-fashioned, but, you know, like most quality professional services organisations, we absolutely live by the maxim that clients' interests are always paramount. And um, and so we, we didn't 
we've been fortunate, I think, probably financially to have the strength to be able to not be tempted to try and, you know, have to get short-term benefits out of our, at our clients' expense. And so many has been the time where our clients have said, oh, look, we're thinking of, you know, we want to sell the property. And we'd always say, but sure, we can help find somebody. We, we largely don't sell because we don't just don't want to be in that business. We think buying well is much more important than selling. But our first question is, why? Mm. What were you trying to achieve when you bought the property or how did you, you know, a lot of them are accidental landlords. What's happened now? You know, almost always is a change in either family circumstance or financial circumstance um, that, that leads to that. And, and, and we talk it through. And so often, you know, and we, we have the conversation both ways. Other times we'll do a portfolio review with clients and we'll say, look, firstly, what were you trying to achieve in property investment, you know, and have those objectives changed? You get a lot of people moving towards retirement. They did invest at least implicitly for capital growth early on, but now they're needing more passive income. Okay, so the portfolio needs to change. Um, uh, but also each individual property, um, is it a good property? Has it performed the way you want? And I think the most staggering thing to me, uh, Chris, was, you know, I did 50 depth interviews with clients, about 45 minutes to throw early on in this process. And one of the most fascinating questions I asked them was, after I asked them why they bought the property and when and was how do you know if it's been a successful investment? What what are your what's your scorecard? What 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 number do you look at? Stumped. And, and you know, just like how do you know? And and you know, I yeah. got one answer out of fifty that <laughs> that had you know some methodology that you know was a this was a a, a serious yeah. investor who had a portfolio of fifty odd properties, and their answer, which I thought was a solid answer, was, "Well, you know, if if the capital growth of that property outperforms the suburb it was in," and I'm like, "Okay, mm. that's that's a that's a that's non crazy answer," but honestly, nobody else gave me an answer that was an an investor's answer. You know, I know this is a good investment because it gets this level of return, or because <laughs> you, you, you you know, the, and, and so it became clear to me that people don't necessarily know how to judge mm. the performance of their property investments um and also, so you know if you don't know where you're going you probably won't get there well yeah and i was about to say even that also a lot of people aren't yeah, game that's true. because yeah. the fact is it's you know and and this is why 71 percent of property investors stop at one property uh, in this country is because yeah. they they get in they go yeah i've done it and then it doesn't do anything yeah. for them it doesn't help them yeah. you know, to actually increase their wealth by building a portfolio and they don't, they're not game to admit they stuffed up because they don't know what the mm. alternatives were. They, they, no one talks about okay. it. There's no one to give them help, right? Yeah. And so, you, you know, and a lot of, a lot of my clients in that conversation, they said, they kind of chuckle and they say, yeah, yeah. I really should have a good answer to that question, mm. shouldn't I? And I'm like, well, I mean, well, you've well, stumped them, to be honest, probably. Evan. I mean, it's, it's a question they don't <laughs> really ever want to get asked and, because they know they don't have the answer to it. Even the one that did, I mean, I probably, you know, wouldn't accept that answer, I think, you know, because if that suburb grew at 1% and you grew up 2% and the market grew at 7%. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I said, I, yeah. That, yeah. I, I thought that was an answer, right, and, and not yeah. a Look, on average, not a bad answer. A starting but, point. <laughs> you know, if I was marking the exam, it probably would have been a C plus. Like, um, you know, yeah. So it's a lot of work, but but this is part of the reason why uh, I guess where where Longview is going is uh, towards uh, more of a funds management approach, mm. um, where um, you know we'll be looking to put together some larger scale funds where people can. 
uh, you know, I'd rather own one percent of a hundred properties than a hundred percent of one property. So effectively, like an ETF um, for properties. Yeah, yeah, you know, a, a real estate investment trust, right? Um, because um, firstly, mm. we can then make sure that all the properties are well bought. You know, that are, that are not just top half, but totally, hopefully, top quartile or top decile. Secondly, it then gives uh, diversity, obviously across a range of different markets and segments, because much as we all try and predict what might happen, um, uh, the more prudent approach is to have uh, at least uh, a thoughtful diversity across uh, states and across uh, different city and regional markets. Um, and thirdly, because then people will have liquidity. So, you know, so many people, they say, oh, we need to sell a property. And I'll say, oh, well, why? You know, um, this is actually a great property. This is, you know, this is uh, your late mother's family home. It, it, it's 630 square yeah. metres in central Bentley in the McKinnon High School zone. This is this is your superannuation all day long. I wouldn't sell this one unless you had to. And you find out, oh, well, you know, my sister needs to get uh, some surgery yeah. and no one's got the money and I need 50 grand and that's so we're going to sell the property. And you're sort of like, oh, wow. Um, you need to go talk yeah. to Chris. There's other ways to find that money, but they don't have liquidity, right? They don't, and and so you've got this binary: I either sell the whole property or not. Obviously, it would be better if you could um, sell a portion of your units in a trust, or if you came yeah. into some extra money, uh, buy some more units in a trust. So, so we do think in the longer term that creating those sorts of vehicles will allow mums and dads to invest in the thing they know and love and yeah. trust, which is bricks and mortar or actually dirt. dirt. Um, <laughs> they think they love bricks and mortar, but yeah. in fact what they love is dirt, which is something we'll keep coming back to, um, And but have liquidity, diversity, um, uh, higher yeah. average return, and none of the management hassles of worrying about, you know, gee, I can't afford the new water. Well, I think what, in I the being shower, a broker I mean, I, and know, an ex-financial um, advisor, yeah. I sort of, go straight into the mindset of when would I have recommended that to clients in the past and what are some of the challenges with that? And the reason they don't yeah. really exist, these realist residential, you've got commercial big REITs, you know, the Westfields and all that sort of stuff. But the reason yeah. that is, is firstly the leverage yeah. within the unit trust is is really diminishes the returns over buying it personally. You know, if you can leverage 100,000 10 times into an investment property. The second thing is yeah. that um, – you know, getting leverage within the trust is difficult because you've got to reduce it at LVRs. You then got to, it's hard to then get leverage personally yeah. into a trust because the bank won't lend you another 80% on top of your money into the trust. But I mean, for people who are getting to that more end of life, life stage, who've, you know, got heaps of equity, they've got capacity, um, you know, things like this do make sense, you know, because they, they don't have yeah. to go and have a big lumpy asset in retirement. And so, yeah. you know, I'm surprised we haven't got more residential trusts coming in. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, looking, one of the things that surprised me, Chris, yeah. is how little leverage many of our clients have. You, you know, so we, we always say that the single most important thing is which property you bought and the second yeah. most important yeah. thing is how you choose to finance it, you know. Um, and and most people don't have um, a, a clear way of thinking about either of those, and you would know that yeah. uh, in both cases, right, and you'd see that all the time. So, um, yeah, so... At the level of leverage that most of the mums and dads have right now, um, you could replicate that level of leverage in in the trust, and actually you could you could differentiate outcomes. Yeah, um, there's ways of structuring that. So, but 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 I mean, but just I mean, just on your question, as it turns out, um, the first um, of these 
investment vehicles we're putting together won't be for rental properties. It will be co-investing with young home buyers to get yep. the deposit they need to buy their first home. Um, Let's because that jump is the into that. Social need might now, right? Like, <laughs> if you don't have the banker, mum and dad, you know, that's one third of a generation that's yep. basically locked out of the property market, and 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 they and and the irony of that is that it's it's like you know I grew up on the central coast of New South Wales. I like the surf. It's like a big set comes through. You paddle really hard to get to the top of the wave. Either you get over it and you come all the way down and ride it into the shore or you fall off the back and the next one's even harder to paddle over, right? So rising house prices are either your enemy or your friend depending on whether you can get enough deposit to get on the wave. So, Evan, on that, and I want to get mm. back to investors and I do... Yeah, I, sorry. No, but I, I, I want to just hit this I first. I, I like that you've brought this up. Um, mm. I want to get back to investors and I think also particularly there's an article that um, you were quoted on in the Herald some a uh, little while back and we'll put the mm. link in the show notes and there was a very interesting yeah. chart there about capital growth and, yeah. and I thought that was fascinating. So I do want to dig into that data. Yes. On the first home buyer thing though, um, obviously, the federal yeah. government came out just before the last election, and now we're recording this before, you know, um, I'm not yeah, sure when one. we'll go yeah. to, to air, whether it would probably be mm. before the election. Um, you know, with the 5% uh, home loan guarantee, mm. and that was pretty good in the sense that it did not limit um, first home buyers to have to buy brand new. And so then it gave them an opportunity yeah. to buy existing stock, but there were price yes. caps, which is a shame, really, because that becomes yeah. a problem in itself. Um, then there's a bunch, you talk about prop tech, there's some prop tech solutions out there which absolutely make me want to rip my skin off. Like, I, honestly, they makes my skin crawl. Um, some of those are absolutely, you know, offering basically access to money um, so first-home buyers can get onto the ladder quicker, but the <laughs> ladder that they're being incentivized to get onto or helped to get onto is a sh rickety old thing. Well, it's not rickety old. It's brand new. It's, it's basically high-cost second mortgage money. Well, yeah. there's that, but there's also um, yeah. funded by developers yeah. to buy their stock. We've seen that, yeah, yes. So sure. that's yeah. another one. Um, Combank has, yeah. has invested yeah, into home. one of them, which I can't remember the name of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can see, you can see that there's a massive industry all dying to get their greasy little paws on this, right? Even though really there's only 100,000 first-home buyers in the market yeah. at any given time in, in Australia mm. versus 11 million mm. property owners. Um, it's, a, it's a massive trap to get first-home buyers having that false sense of security that they're on the ladder. Yay, I made it. But then, you know, then the nightmare begins. And I've been interviewing a lot of people from first home, your first home buyer guide around this, yeah. and I've had some horrible yeah. stories. So I love the fact that you want to tackle that, but how can you not be one of those cynical, money-grabbing, yeah. um, you know, yeah. Prop 100%. techs or business people, yeah. whatever, thinking, right, I want a piece of this pie because it's an obvious problem, right? And when you've got an obvious problem, you've got everyone yeah. wanting to solve it and make their money out of it. And and I really worry about this. Yeah, look, and, and so do we, right? And, uh, and I guess, again, our solution has come out yeah. of our client work. Again, not, not a bunch of prop tech kiddies sitting around with spreadsheets and investment bankers. Um, and... Um, so most of the solutions out there focus yep. on selling you money, to your point, on some range yep. of terms that may or may not be fair or egregious. None of them are serious about helping you buy the right asset. 
just for starters, right? So the first proposition that we have is the whole point of this is to help people buy a good asset. And as you know, Veronica, a good asset in the context in particular of an owner-occupied home is first and foremost a property that really meets the needs of the lifestyle of that family and not just now but over the next at least seven to ten years. And as you know, many young families can't see round corners. They buy the property that feels perfect for them today. Within three or four years, it's not going to work. They get smashed on a second set of stamps, yada, yada, yada. Or, or they, they get, get divorced. The new, or they sadly, they get divorced or they buy a new melee kitchen because it looks nice, but they don't recognise that the rest of the property is not valuable. Um, so job one, there's no point in giving people finance to Absolutely. get on the property ladder if yeah. you don't help them get on the right rung of the property ladder. So... Well, I would separate yep. us from almost everybody else in that space right now because that's what we're doing. And a lot of the people moving into this space yep. of yep. the financial yep. side are bankers at heart, Yeah, right? They come from that industry, right? And and here's the thing about the three villains that I described earlier, right? The, the, the mortgage lenders, the developers, and the sales agents, which out of any of those three give a rats about what the property's worth, not today, yep. but 10 years from now? Agree. Answer, yeah. none of them. Mm -hmm. Right? So, and that's why there's no, and those are the three big industries. They're the ones that have all the airtime. They're the ones that have all the political clout. They're the ones that buy all the advertising, so they get all the ink. And none of them have any interest, let alone knowledge, let alone care yeah. about What's the value of the property 10 years from now? And yet that's the thing that matters the most yeah. to the outcome for the people who buy that property, whether as an investment or as their family home. So, you know, we start out as you do, Veronica, you, you know, starting out as our job is to help the client buy a good property, all the more so if it's an owner-occupied home that works for them and their lifestyle and is going to be able to expand with their lifestyle sensibly if they need to but which 10 years from now is going to get at least average performance, if not better. Um, and so then a financing solution that helps them get on that wave, if it's fairly structured, will share a portion of the upside with them for helping do that and make sure there are no repayments and no cash flow drain along the way so they can't get themselves tipped over um, by, um, by, you know, borrowing too much money. It's an equity well, investment. I think it's, I think it's pretty smart, Evan. Um, mm. So that, 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 that's the way we're, 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 we're approaching it. And um, what was interesting to us actually was, as we researched this a lot with clients, um, we didn't know that yep. the buyer's advisory yep. component would be as valuable to them as it was. We thought they just wanted, just give me the money, just give me the check, I'll go. But actually most of them knew that they didn't know what to buy or how to buy. And they thought that yeah. was important and there was no one to help them. Yeah. They kept saying, who's on my side? Mm. I know the bank's not on my side, right? I know the sales agents aren't on my side. They lie to me all day long. Um, maybe my mortgage broker's on my side. The good mortgage brokers, you know, really are. D depends on their experience. The, the not-so-good mortgage brokers are more kind of paid operatives for the banks. Um, <laughs> so they think maybe my mortgage broker's on my side, maybe. But, like, who's on my side and who's there to give me good advice? And, and so that turns out to be, and this yeah. is, again, 
for your I think, I, think I think you're bang on there, Evan. You know, I think you're right. Um, I've been yeah. um, consulted multiple times on new products that are coming into this space, um, you know, mm. privately around my mm. thoughts on their products. And absolutely the biggest risk is yeah. that they're trying to make um, money on the disadvantages of the first home buyer, right, by giving them the extra cash to potentially avoid lender's mortgage insurance or at least give them a 10% deposit and charging exorbitant numbers mm. that, you know, really wipe out a lot of their mm. returns. But the, what they don't all get, is it matters what the property they buy and whether that works for them, whether it goes up in value. None of them understand property market, right? If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Well, and this is what's ironic is, mate, they're exactly going right. to deliver rubbish results to their own investors. Yes. That, that's what's <laughs> ironic to me. Not only are you going to, like, you know, not only are you going to get poor results for your clients, which should bother you the most, but actually, you know, the, the, the money tree and the venture money is going to run out sooner or later mm, because you're absolutely. going to get rubbish results Especially for the going investors into a the higher funds. interest rate so environment it, where, you know, potentially, actually, you know, sideways movement with prices, you can't bank on property price growth, right? Um and especially on the type of properties they're looking at. I mean, I, I, I do always go back to the government and the government have not really, you know, pointed everyone in the right direction. The government have set a first home buyer save us, um, deposit scheme, buying any property up to a certain price limit. That price limit is so low that it pushes you to poor assets. Yeah. Um, and Yeah. Yeah. And as you know, a lot of the state government schemes are then particularly focused on new build construction because yeah. yep. really yep. they're more subsidies so, for so the all development whole sort industry. Of co-buy, there's a co-buy um, yeah. sort of talk in Victoria <laughs> where the government owns a certain percentage of the property. Um, all of these things are, are forgetting the big point which you, you raised is it's, it all goes down to the property they buy at the end of the day. Um, and so, and I think if you can team, you buy the right asset. yeah, smart yes, investors with good decisions for the first home buyer, mm. yeah, they get their money back in time, but there's ways around it, then there is definitely a, a sort of cross benefit there. Mm. So Evan, back onto your sort of your research and your mm. data, when you've sort yeah. of gone and, did you look at all the properties yeah. in Australia or just Victoria when you sort of analyze stuff? Okay. Uh, look, the first set of work we okay. did was just all of well, Victoria. Just, and that, going what back applies there will probably Australia, apply but, in different um, states. Yeah, there so. def definitely are different, um, you know, yeah. changes to different markets. Yeah. There are, we're seeing, you know, as we go through. And, but I mean, again, you, you know, for, for convenience or, or ignorance, a lot of the traditional presentations of this data by, again, the banks and the other data houses um, break things down by state or by, uh, you know, suburb often. And, um, you know, we look at everything at the individual property level. We've analysed the sales history of every property for 50 years, right? Every transaction on every property. Um, you, you know, we always say to our clients, you don't buy a suburb, you buy a property. I can show you good yeah. and bad properties in every suburb in Australia, right? Obviously, some suburbs or groups or regions or cities or locations have certain points in a performance wave that 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 are, that are important to understand, mm. um, but but you know, I mean, let me give you just you, to take your case study methodology. You know, Veronica, you know, the data shows that one of the 
rules of thumb that our buying professionals always had was always buy in blue chip suburbs. You will always get better capital growth. Um, and, and we tested that. Uh, and in the Victorian context, at least that turned out not to be true recently. Um, when many of them started in the business, that was very much true through the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. But um, the development frontier moved out from that point, and it turns out over the last 15 years, um, generally speaking, the capital growth performance in a range of middle ring areas had outperformed. So to take them, you'll forgive me using Melbourne examples, but, um, you know, uh, Brighton, which is as blue chip as it gets, did an average 6.2% CAGR, compound annual growth rate, folks, um, and Glenn Waverley did 8.1%. Okay, so... Um, uh, and even more interestingly, um, we, we colour-coded the capital growth performance of every single property and stuck it up on a huge map. And gold was like 12% CAGR and above, so, you know, doubling every seven years, right, um, down to purple, which was sort of 3% or whatever. Um, and uh, there was this big golden triangle in the middle of um, the city of Monash uh, around the Glen Waverley area, and my team said, I what on earth is that? Why is there all this gold? And you can look at it. And I said, actually, I know what that triangle is because I've just dealt with it in client, individual client assignments. That's the Glen Waverley Secondary College School District. Is that the Chinese right. money? <laughs> well, partly, <laughs> yes. But what was interesting about that was it's not news, right, that a side street outperforms a main road. It's not news that well, when I say outperforms, has a high price, has a price premium. It's not news that a good school district has a price premium over being the other side of that road, right, mm. and being outside the school district. That's a slightly separate question, though, as to whether they have a growth premium. And that, this, so, let's, so, and, yeah. and in this case, what was interesting about the Glen Waverley Secondary College School District is not that you bought in, you paid a 15% premium to be inside the district than to be outside it. What was interesting is 15 years ago you paid a 15% premium to be in the school district. Yeah. Now you're paying a 40% premium. And so while Glen Waverley as a whole did 8.1% CAGR, the Glen Waverley yeah. Secondary College School District did 11.2. So absolutely shot the lights out. But, but so there I've used a bunch of data and it goes down to the individual property level. But literally the same week we saw the Golden Triangle on the map, we did an appraisal for a client who owned a property inside the Glen Waverley Secondary College School District that they bought 10 years ago for 390000 And guess what? We 400? unfortunately appraised it for them. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. 285. 285. Yeah. Down over that time, despite the fact that it was in, like, one of the hottest zones in the country, right? Why? It was a new build apartment that they paid too much for um, and that was all building and no land content and it went down in value over that period. So so a complete train wreck. But I guarantee if I go back 10 years and I look at the developer's sales pitch, they'll, they would probably say, certainly if they had my data, buy this suburb, buy my development. It's yep. in the hot suburb. It's got the greatest performance. Mm -hmm. And th that's, that's the stuff that I call weapons-grade bullshit because they use yeah. actual facts to mislead people, you know? 100%. Um, and that's, that's what really angers me. And that's why I go back to you don't buy a suburb, you, you buy a property. Yes, the macro trends matter um, and, and they do matter. And, and, you know, I talked about the middle ring versus the inner ring and a whole bunch of stuff. We do all of that. But, but you know... The individual property. I mean, most people and, get know, school zones, good school zones aligned to income, uh, higher incomes um, because people want to do the best for their kids and they're working on their careers and 
you know, good public schools save you on the private school fee, et cetera. Yeah. So the, the common sense sort of overlay does make sense. Yeah. What were some of the things where you thought? But, 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 but I want to just make the difference here. It's a subtle point, but a really important one. There are other school zones which have, say, a 20% mm. price premium to be inside the school zone versus outside, but 15 yeah. years later still have a 20% premium. So as an investment, they, you would be indifferent. I would still buy inside that school zone for a bunch of reasons, not least because on after-tax income basis, that's the cheapest way you can get an education for your kids by the length of the straight. And I think it's a good decision and it's probably a nicer place to live. But let's be clear, from a financial point of view, yeah, if that price premium doesn't change, then financially you're indifferent. So we gotcha, just try yeah. and make that distinction between price premiums and growth premiums. Yeah, and, and this is really important because the growth premium compounds are as the price premium basically stays the same. And so that, that's where yeah. you get the gap widening over time between those yeah. that do well and those that are just sort of treading water versus those that aren't doing well. But why, yeah. Glenn Waverley then, why that school versus others that so, are equally in demand? Yeah, so obviously we're now working back through that and – um, we're now getting our team is correlating academic yeah. results by school and seeing if there's, you know, how much you can track that and predict the impact that that will have in future. Um, there are also demographic issues there, as as you mentioned, Chris. Yes, there is a there is a significant, um, a particularly Chinese language community there, as well as a significant um, English, uh, Indian community in parts of that district, and and there's particular yeah. income demographics and other factors that that have probably played a role in that one as a, qu a question um, so, on that so as an investment it slightly outperformed the mckinnon high school yeah. zone which is arguably an even better school so um, with it that, still perform very well by the way but yeah. does the diversity matter then because i know like one of the things i love um with like kent lardner's data is that price segmentation looking at at the diversity of price segments in any particular market i would imagine and i could be wrong about this that brighton in in melbourne there on the bay side there would have maybe quite skewed towards the high end, maybe not yep. a lot of the middle sort of, you know, there might not be as many price segments perhaps. Do, is that something that Glenn Waverley has that, that you know, potentially the blue chip areas don't have or not? Chris not is shaking his head. <laughs> because in relative price terms that was true 30 years ago and Brighton outperformed Glenn Waverley over that period. So, um, no, I think it's got more. I mean, yes, what you say is certainly true, and and this is again the point is using a single variable like mm -hmm. location. You, you know, it's about segmentation, but those segments could be location driven, they could be price point driven, they could be housing type driven, they could be a bunch of things. Mm. Um, I think uh, you know what. Look, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the general thesis that is testing pretty well for us, and and which again is sort of obvious, but which I think is reasonably robust in a lot of different situations. It comes back to this basic notion, land appreciates, buildings depreciate, um, and, and, and there's a whole lot of stuff, particularly around population growth, that is the fundamental long-term driver of that, not interest rates, by the way. Mm. Um, <laughs> and so part of what, you know, the, the strongest correlation we see generally within the standard sort of urban areas of the three big cities um, to, to high capital growth performance is, uh, and I use this phrase advisedly, land content and what i mean by that specifically is what proportion of the purchase price you paid for that property yeah. was effectively the value of the land um and so generally speaking our our, our, our our rough rule of thumb to start with is if you're able to buy a property which has in excess of 80 percent land content 
um, but is a solid older dwelling that is a good dwelling and that has plenty of use for life in it and that perhaps ideally somebody renovated 10 or 15 or 20 years ago so it gave you the good the good uh, you know open plan back end and everything the hard work had been done but all that's been kind of you know then then you're yeah. highly likely to get strong capital growth performance so in very simple terms on average if you see that well-located urban land it appreciates about nine percent compound per annum on average, as the ATO will tell you, your buildings depreciate about 2.5% compound per annum. So it's a simple question. What proportion of my money is in the appreciating asset? What proportion is in the depreciating asset? The more subtle question is, which particular pieces of land are better located yeah. or will, on average, outperform other pieces of land? That's a less critical question, but it matters. And it comes to the Glen Waverley versus Brighton examples that we've used here. The key thing that seemed to drive land value appreciation is what we call the development frontier. So essentially when the developers started coming through, buying up the quarter acre lots and cutting them up into townhouses and villas, that's when a, a super premium was paid for those blocks of land. And you can see if you watch a colour-coded map over a 30-year period, you can watch the development wave roll out across the city. But that's a one-off. Um, that, it that is. change of it zoning is. is a one-off hit, lovely sugar hit for whoever happened to sit oh, on that property. These weren't necessarily changes of zoning, though. I mean, you'll see specific zone change are much more dramatic, and, and as you know, that's much more micro-located. But it's a general uh, change of land use, I guess. Um, and so, um, so that's broadly, I think, why the houses in Glen Waverley outperformed the houses in Brighton over that period is that there was substantial redevelopment of those properties um, uh, at that time. And we're seeing that wave moving now more to the middle outer suburbs. Um, and you, as you would be unsurprised to know, there's a very strong correlation around particularly access to train stations um, within those, those bands. So does that, and, though, you know, then mean that once that wave is gone, then it comes back to... Is there a second wave? You know, they they it starts again, or does it come back yeah, to your and, blue and chip areas, then start to actually outperform again? Because once that that one hit of the zoning change, the redevelopment change. Well, and I guess this is what I'm saying about this is a second order effect, which land appreciates slightly better than other land. The primary order effect is ensuring that you've got good land content, mm. right? And broadly speaking well-located yeah. land across a large part of the urban mass is on the long term appreciating about nine percent compound per annum but some of it does six or seven for a period and then does 10 mm. or 12 for a period if you can understand or time some of those waves and you know the development frontier is one of them obviously new infrastructure or other things yeah. comes in or, or new school zones or you know all the other factors we all know and, and kent does wonderful work on mm. um that stuff at the at, not at the margins it, it ends up being material um but um, but the, the land content thing is still the number one driver and it's still the thing that's least understood um, by, by by ordinary property buyers. So when you're and, doing and the data that, property you know, you've, we've always um, got beliefs, right, things that we think are true until the data sort of proves us wrong, right? Was there certain things that popped out where you thought, you know, that there should be a bigger premium that people are, you know, a better capital growth return they're getting for that benefit? But... It, the data sort of shows that's not the case. Is there any sort of really surprising things that... Well, let me tell you, I mean, look, my yeah. favourite Mythbuster, and this is not at the individual property level, but and there's a whole bunch of segments where it matters, but my favourite Mythbuster just to call complete bullshit on almost the entire 
uh, dialogue around property prices for the last five years um, is mm. the issue of interest rates. Here's a simple exercise. Map interest rates in Australia for 100 years and map property prices and capital growth over the same period and put the two graphs together. If the understanding that is that is widely put out there <laughs> that uh, property prices move in inverse correlation to interest rates were true, you would see mm. that on the graph. You don't see that at all. Um, you see a very muddy correlation that on average statistically is in fact slightly on average in the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I'm not saying that if interest rates go up tomorrow, property prices won't go down. But what I'm saying is it's a much more complex equation um, and a lot of it has to do with it's, it's, it's a love triangle of three variables, not two, because the third variable is inflation. And, of course, interest rates are put up in response to inflation, but property prices go up with inflation. And for those who are highly mm. levered, as you know, Chris, inflation is your friend, right? Because um, it diminishes the relative value of the debt versus the equity on the property. And so the the simplistic understanding of the correlation between interest rates and property prices is is just not true. It's much more complex. And as, uh, to your point about, you know, segments, of course, yeah. there are highly interest Absolutely. rate sensitive segments, just as they you know, as the politicians will talk about the mortgage belt, they're highly interest rate sensitive voting groups. There are highly interest rate sensitive segments, which are very highly geared segments of the market. And, and, and yeah. they do have a, a bigger correlate, you know, they have a more serious. Mm. But, so to me, that's just a good example of stuff that is, is just accepted without question. Um, and, and literally, I mean, I, the first time I did this, like it takes it takes less than 120 seconds on Google to get those two graphs and put them together and go, wait, yeah. hang on a minute. That didn't show what I thought it was. Stuart Weems no. did a, a podcast on this yeah. only very recently and he, and he put a chart right. up. And, in fact, I, I ran a masterclass for my clients last night on basically, you know, should I sell my investment property now? A lot of people going, oh, it's the peak of the wave. I should be yeah. getting out. Yeah. Like, hang on a minute. And a lot of the things you were saying earlier, Evan, asking exactly those same questions, how, do, how does this fit with what your original plan is? Did you have an original plan? Like, you know. Um, how has right. it performed? How yeah. are you measuring that? How are you benchmarking? I'll put money on that you're not. You know, all that sort of stuff, right? So, um, yeah. and and I brought up and that this, chart. And there's this whole focus on the right time, right? Oh. And the focus should be on the right property. Exactly. Right? That right time thing, again, comes from other industries, right? I mean, it partly comes from the share market, right, where mm. trading really matters, but it also comes from aforementioned villains, okay, all the other villains in the piece, Mortgage lenders, developers, and sales agents yeah, make money really so true. on transactions. transactions. So let me. So let, what's the right time according to them? Now. Today is always the right time. <laughs> now is always the right time. The question you should be asking is what's the right time to do something? And the answer is always today, <laughs> right? So, 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 Evan. The question should be what's the right property? Just on that, right? And obviously, the timing is more important when you sell than when you buy, I, I do believe, because it does come back yeah. to the right asset, right? And if you've got a shit asset, you should just yeah. get rid of it. But. So yeah, I, I looked that. at that correlation. Interesting. I had a chat with Stuart about that as well, and he and mm -hmm. he sent me a tweet from the Cook Steve Cook Cook um, The we have yeah. interviewed him some time back. Um, mm. He he said the same thing. When will you? When will these economists start looking at the evidence and stop saying that prices fall when interest rates rise? Then I was listening to a podcast, a ComBank podcast, uh, where Gareth Ed, you know, the the chief economist of, of ComBank, said. Said in prices will fall, interest rates are about a right, it will be rising, prices will fall. And I'm like, this is just absolutely, I think it's just laziness for someone in his position to actually say that. Again, 
in, and, and in this case, I don't think the major retail banks are deliberately trying to mislead people. Um, it's not much thinking. as I dislike them for a whole range of reasons. It's just because they live in an interest rate driven world and their profits are driven by interest rates and the spreads they get on that and a whole bunch of other stuff. They just assume this is true in the same way as, you know, the development lobby says the reason house prices keep going up is because there's not enough supply. Now, um, that again, um, no. That's not true. The reason rents don't go up is if you don't have enough dwellings. That's true. If the supply of dwellings is slower than the supply of people who want to rent them, then rents will rise. Um, but as it turns out, what's driving house prices up is not the supply of dwellings. It's the supply of land and the fact that it never changes and the amount of demand for that land. And so um, um, freeing things up for more development will, of course, put upward pressure on land prices, not downward pressure. I'm not saying we shouldn't have more development, there shouldn't be more supply, and that that isn't critical to affordable housing, but let's, let's at least be honest. like be honest. I, I think your interest you know, rate one is, um, is very you yeah. know true because there's people, I guess, level one thinking, they think, oh, rates go down, prices go up. So the next three years, rates are going to go up, so prices are going to go down. So why would I buy it today? I'll wait till rates go up. And they right. think, you know, and then they apply that logic to the whole market and they go, well, why would I even buy in 2022, you know? And they right. forget that, yeah. And, and, and Chris, people yeah. have been sold that bill of goods for, I mean, Steve Keen, like how, yeah. many, how many decades have we met people who said, I'll stay out of the market? And, and, and so, you know, let's be clear about the one thing, you know, Australian house prices and urban land prices have gone pretty straight north for 100-plus years now. Um and what are the variables that have consistently correlated with that? It's not interest rates. It's not negative gearing or any other tax policy. It's not supply. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. What's, right. Inflation. Population. Australia has no, 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 no inflation up and down. <laughs> Two things. Australia yeah. has close to the highest yeah. population growth rate in the world and has had since before we were born. Income growth. And... Mm. You know, Australia, New Zealand and Israel have the three highest population growth rates in the world, uh, you know, apart from sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the developed world, right? Um, and secondly, uniquely in Australia, we have the highest urban concentration. You know, 52% mm. of our population is in just three urban centres, Sydney, Melbourne and South East Queensland. So, um, you know, in the US, for example, mm. which has quite high population growth but not as high as us, um, the top 20 urban centres only make up 39% of the population. Mm. If it gets too expensive in Philadelphia, mm. you move to Baltimore and that's just fine. Right? In Australia, you simply don't. You move to right? Brisbane. So, <laughs> right, if you have the highest population, close to the highest population growth rate in the world and close to the highest population concentration in the world and you have a stable, well-run and well-regulated macroeconomy, which actually we do, which is ironed out, everyone says, you know, there's going to be another, this is a housing boom, there's going to be another crash. It's interesting, muscle memory, there hasn't been a crash in Australian property since 1893. They're talking about the UK, the US, a bunch of other markets that were not well regulated, ours was, right? So if you have those characteristics on average, there'll be wrinkles year by year, but on average, you're going to see that continued increase in the value of urban land. And so, you know, that's the fundamental thing. It's not complete it's not one variable that drives everything look we've just gone through a lack of population yeah. growth and yet prices have gone through the roof I, I get it but over the long term the principal driver of australian housing prices has been increasing population with stable to increasing population concentration 
Um, and and that's driven land values, and that's yeah, and I mean growing our economy story. in terms of you know companies and the wealth and the capitalism and the incomes to a certain pocket leads to yeah. you know and then a lack of zoning changes on top of that. But ultimately, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, the interesting thing is that yeah. a lot of people yeah. Um, yeah, yeah will take that level on thinking. I'm not going to buy because prices get to fall because they read the CBA article or they you know, listen to Steve Keen or Martin North or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Martin and I, good mates, um, but. Um, you know what I mean? They don't really then understand yeah. the dynamics of the local market, all that art that you spoke about, you know. Well, if prices are falling, then people are, like, are less likely yeah. to sell. And so because they say, well, why would I sell in 2022? And then, yeah, exactly. And then people sit on their hands and then it's actually harder to buy in yeah. down markets. And when that good property comes up, all the buyers are picky, go and try to buy yeah. that good property. And then it's like a fight, like a seagull over a chip. And so I think you're, you're so right. I think that, you know, most people are focusing on what the world's doing and not focusing on the asset they're buying and how does that fit their long-term plan. Yeah, and, and have try and have these simple rules of thumb and one one size fits all and single variables which don't work right i mean the price segmentation you know what what drives price performance in the more luxury ends of the markets yeah, is actually true, yeah. more the performance of equity markets mm. right right the, those folks are making big money on the stock exchange and when they make big money on the stock exchange it all drains down into real estate right henry george was right 140 years ago long term Land becomes the wealth sink of every economy. <laughs> and I think you've got to believe in the big picture, Australia. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's a lot yeah, of people who yeah. think we shouldn't, you know, grow our population. But the reality is, 25 million in, you know, eight, nine, 10 billion people in the world over the next, you know, 50 years. So we're going to grow our population, right? Um, it brings in so much money mm. to our economy, and we want to grow our economy and standard of living. So yeah. if if you believe in that, then you've got to believe in sort of good quality land in our capital cities because. We can't just build another Brisbane or a Sydney or a Melbourne overnight, right? Like it's that those those things take decades and decades, and um, we're sort of already behind the the eighth ball because um, we're moving to more knowledge work rather than sort of um, you know farmland, I guess. Yeah, so you know, at one level, I think that the broad trends are actually pretty simple and pretty uncomplicated and pretty incontrovertible, which is why taking advice on don't buy because prices are about to go down generally is you know, that's not the right. You're asking the wrong question. Well, the right question is what. What property should I buy? A secondary question may be, is today a really bad time to buy this property? Because occasionally you might say it's, it's not the best time. But absent that, if if you have good objectives, you're buying for the long term. And again, look, we've analysed uh, after about seven years, what we call the vintage risk becomes much less significant, right? So, you, you know, different, different bottles of wine from different vintages are better or worse, and it's the same with with, with uh, uh, property prices in different segments. And so obviously there are some years that it would have been a better year to buy in, broadly speaking, than others. But after seven years, those effects have um, mitigated to a significant extent. By 12 years, um, it, it's, it's really, there's just not a lot in it. Um, so the important thing, again, was did you buy the right property? I've done some analysis on that as well, and and mm. the premium you may have paid on on an A grade asset, an A grade location, actually that premium doesn't compound. It's it's a one off yeah. cost, you know, and it sits there like you say. And the mm. longer you own that property, it just diminishes in ter- in percentage 
yeah. um, an impact. And, yeah. and as does your stamps, right? And which is yet another reason why mm. you know you should be buying for long term hold wherever possible. Yeah. And therefore, you got to buy the right asset. Exactly. The other thing too is that um, you know there's a lot of noise around interest rates and falling prices and all the rest of mm. it, and it's not helped by the fact that the media can't actually I don't know interpret numbers. Um, one is you know when, and I mentioned this in the full forecaster report episode, and I was about really surprised that Westpac came out with this forecast saying that 14% price falls by 2023 or whatever. And it literally, mm. it was, they, this was released at the end of the last half of 2021. They were saying another 2% rise at the end of 2021 and a fall of, I think, 5% 2022 and a 7% in 2023. Now, if you add those three numbers up, you get 14%, but it's actually plus 2, minus 7, minus 5. It's mm. 8%. Um, so... Mm. You know, the point is that that was just repeated as headlines and people go, oh, 14%. And it's like yeah. no one even bothered to mm. interrogate the, the actually what compromised well, that. Well, but and, and again, another another one, know. though, is the RBA saying that, you know, if interest rates rise, then the growth rate will be, you know, price growth will be impacted mm. to the tune of yeah. 15% lower than it would be in two years' time if prices if uh, interest rates don't rise. So people go, oh, my God, prices are going to fall 15%. No, they're not. What they is saying is that prices won't grow, you know, quite as much as they will if interest rates stay as they are, you know. And it's once again, it's like stop reading a bloody percentage and, and the word fall or not price rise or whatever and then just go, oh, my God, it's all going to fall off a cliff. It's actually not. Read the detail. Understand it. Yeah. And and look, you know, um, I, I, yeah. I suspect that there will be some price falls in our market. Yeah. With or without interest yep. rate changes, quite frankly, because it's just gone through the, the, the most Absolutely. rapid price increase in history, right? But the reverse was also true. You know, everyone was going crazy about the, you know, the uptick that started in, in, in you know, yep. in the middle of COVID when everyone thought it was going to be a downtick. And the first 12% of that uptick was just catching yep. back up to the peak of 2017. So, you know, it was only the second yep. half of that that was even new growth, <laughs> right? So... Um, people always look at an incredibly short time frame on property prices and try and explain everything in that incredibly short time frame. And you just zoom out and look at the picture over a decade or more. And yeah. uh, it's an interesting it's point, just, actually. I mean, it, at that COVID yeah. point, um, How much I actually got us chasing up old clients and clients who are interested in sort of doing something and they go cold because, you know, they read the wrong things, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And um, this one client was going to buy an investment mm -hmm. property because, oh, and it was you know, April 2020. And, I said, he said, oh, you know, I think prices are going to fall, blah, blah, blah. And I just quickly wrote a one paragraph back to him and sort of said, it's not what we're seeing, you know. It's not what we're seeing on the ground. We're seeing um, demand pick up. We're seeing more applications for pre-approval. Mm. We're seeing sellers, you know, uh, listings start to drop. And when you started to apply right. that, you know, obviously that was a real peak time of fear. And we were like, and it's and then you exactly so what yeah. people think is you know going to miraculously happen then you got to get on the ground and see what's happening you know from listings and buyers etc and uh, mm. yeah it's really Evan have you got a mm. property Dumbo mm. for us? Mm. All this focus on all this yeah. focus on um, timing in yeah. narrative is driven by yeah. the transaction driven industries. Yeah, you know, I agree. And this is what the state government is, um, you know, trying to do is create more transactions, right? They make more money on transactions and they're trying to move from uh, stamp duty, which is ineffective to land tax. And they've already, they've, there's research out there, they've even said they reckon transactions are going to increase 50%. If you increase the speed of the property market, you increase the speed of debt creation. And if you can create more debt, you'll create higher prices. And that's exactly what, so you'll allow more people to borrow because they, uh, 
don't need stamp duty. They need a 10% deposit. So that'll create short-term increase in demand. But then when they buy something of someone else, then they'll reinvest and they'll take out more debt and the, the whole system kicks off. Hence why they're always trying to keep first-time buyers into the system to keep on creating more debt. So, um, yeah, it is absolutely, it's all about transactions and people forget that higher transactions correlate to higher prices because more debt. Um, Evan, have you got a property Dumbo for us? So some like a story, um, you know, it doesn't have to be yourself, someone or maybe one of your clients that mistake that we can all learn from. Uh, uh, the last thing I want to do is label this client a Dumbo. Yeah, these, well, it's a bit of a play on words with our elephant. Yeah. You know, honest, um, but, but, we don't but, think people but, are Dumbos. But again, <laughs> they they were tricked, okay? So we, we have uh, a lovely uh, family, clients of ours, hardworking folks, um, uh, he's a tradie, she's a teacher or a nurse, I forget which, she'll forgive me. Um, you know, they own, uh, a, you know, a solid um, working-class home in Altona Meadows, which is a modest western suburbs um, uh, family suburb. Um, they worked hard, put money aside, saved some money, wanted to make sure they had a little bit to hand on to their two daughters who were in high school. They bought two investment properties as a consequence. Um they bought two yep. off-the-plan apartments in downtown Melbourne. Um, and they came to us and said, look, we really want to move to central Altona, which is much nicer, closer to the beach on the railway line, and the school there is really good. But we're just not sure we can afford it. And I said, uh, and we looked at their whole situation, and I said, well, actually, the single best thing you could do is to sell those two non-performing apartments and put all of that money. I know this is very tough advice Absolutely. I'm going to give you buy yourself a nicer house. <laughs> and and they didn't trust my advice because it was so, you know, and I said if you could buy, if you sold those two properties, you could yep. buy a lovely period home in central Altona, close to the railway line, in the school, close to the beach. Um, you will get, you know, 7 or 8% capital growth on that for the next 15 years. Um, it'll be tax-free. It'll be land tax-free. It'll be capital gains tax-free. You will have more to hand over to your daughters than the, mm. than the hard-working, honest effort you've made to, to you know, to sacrifice your personal lifestyle in order to buy these investment properties that you were tricked into buying. And it just it made my heart break to see people led down that path. And we, we said um, I mean, I literally just jumped off a call at yeah. 1.30 today prior to this, and it was a similar situation, you know, the... Uh, Perth. We don't do many clients in Perth, to be honest. It was, uh, and they wanted to buy a really modest home in Perth, around six hundred thousand. And his his belief was he'll buy that, and then he'll go and buy an investment property. And you know, roughly, you could buy a six hundred thousand dollar house and a six hundred thousand dollar investment property, or maybe a million dollar house, right? Um, because he doesn't get the rent on the investment property, right? And I'm like, well, where's your six hundred thousand dollar house going to be? It's not going to be in a, the, the desirable parts of Perth. Where's your six hundred thousand dollar investment property again? It's not going to be a quality asset, right? It's tough at that price point. Um, and you know, it was just didn't understand the opportunity cost of potentially just going down the home route with one better asset growing tax free, um, and just really wanted the validation to me to say, yeah, okay, I'll do the loan. And we're like, well, no, it's not how it works. Yeah. Yeah, because people again, yeah. people sold a bill of goods, not least by property yeah. spruikers and other 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 villains. That you know, the yeah. number of yeah, properties absolutely. And so he's saying, "Well, I need a retirement income." Oh, no, you just want to build net asset base. They'll give you retirement in income in the future. And um, yeah, it's all these sort of myths. That unfortunately, they just if you go and you speak to someone, they're just going to validate you. See, it was easy for you, Evan, to say, "Okay, yeah, probably you can't afford it. We'll just keep managing those two investment properties." What you do is you lift the veil up, and then they're like, "Oh." 
then they've got to make hard decisions, you know, the sunk costs, the, the, the loss aversion, yeah. the, the feeling that they've made yeah. mistakes all sort of come to, to yeah. fruition. And, mm. but you know, ultimately you and I yeah. both know that would have been the better decision. Um, it's just that to, you got to have the confidence to deliver it, knowing that it might upset them, but knowing it's ultimately what they want need to hear. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, this is why, and I've talked to Veronica about this, you know, this is why the buying yeah. industry needs to become a loud voice, mm. you, you know, and a unified voice, well, the, the quality yeah. buyers. I know yeah. they're, they're a transaction-driven buy side folks as well yep. as we know, and they're, mm. they're, they're not any. But, you know, for the quality part of the buying industry to develop its voice and say, our profession is about ensuring you buy properties that meet your needs today and in the future and yeah. will be worth significantly more 10 years from now than they are today. That's what we're focused on. It's about individual properties, not the whole property market. Um, and and those are the questions you should be asking. What, what am I trying to achieve? And what's the best property to help me achieve that now? And how can I buy that property? And, y- y- you know, if we can just get those simple messages out consistently into, into the public square, um, we, we'll have we'll have done. Um, awesome, Evan. I think yeah, it's a great way to end service. it, to be honest. Um, and really appreciate you coming on and spending some time with us. So, thanks a lot, Evan. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs, or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.